You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, chapters 40 to 48 are all part of a single vision within the book of Ezekiel. And because it's a vision, it's important that we don't, as I tried to get across last week, press it into a literal mode or or a literal mold and even a legislative or prescriptive format for that matter. God did not intend the book of Ezekiel and his visions to impart to us new rules that we should be expected to follow today or even at the end of the age, like a restored sacrificial system. Christ has already fulfilled the law and the demands of the sacrificial system. There does not need to be a new one in the future. And if you take chapters 40 to 48 literally, then that's what would be happening. And that would be violating our new covenant arrangement that we have in Christ now. And that's why you and I need to think through where literalism leads us. Not just in this book, but in every book. So Ezekiel's tour of the temple is now complete. And his vision continues, and now it's focused outward. It's focused to the rest of the land and the influence that the temple has on it. So let's look at the different allotments of land and see where those implications lead us, okay? So let's look at the the allotments. First is the 12 tribes portion. The 12 tribes are really the backbone of of the Old Testament story from Jacob on. And then they play an important role in Jesus' genealogy, which we won't get a chance to get into today. And when you read the Bible, you will probably often come across references to the patriarchs or our founding fathers of the Jewish faith, the, the, the guys by the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That phrase, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appears quite often in the Old Testament. Abraham, as you know, is the father of the faith. Isaac, his firstborn son, and Jacob, Jacob. Jacob, also called Israel, was the grandson of Abraham, and it was his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is here on the overhead. You can see it sort of sketched out a bit. Listen to uh, the the first allotment in the book of Joshua. So we'll be going back in time quite a bit to Joshua uh, chapter 13. And this is the first allotment of land that took place. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old. Thanks, God. And there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Then we bump down to verse 6. Be sure to allot this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, the only, there's only nine tribes listed in, here, in this next little bit here, and the other three, the three tribes, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're out of the line of Joseph, They had already been given their inheritance by God in the Transjordan area on the map there, this side of it. But you can see the new allotments in Ezekiel's vision here on the overhead as it's sketched out down below. And they're different from the allotments given in Joshua's day. That's the new future 12 tribes portion. Let's look at another portion. Let's look at the Lord's portion. Ezekiel 45 verses 1 to 6 says, When you allot the land as an inheritance, you are to present to the Lord a portion of the land as a sacred district. 25,000 cubits long, 20,000 cubits wide, and the entire area will be holy. 
of this, a section 500 cubits square, is to be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits around it for open land. In the sacred district, measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide. In it will be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It will be the sacred portion of the land for the priests who, are, who minister in the sanctuary and who draw near to minister before the Lord. It will be a place for their houses as well as a holy sanctuary for the sanctuary, a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits wide will belong to the Levites who serve in the temple as their possession for towns to live in. So within the Lord's portion are a few other allotments. First of all, the sacred district. The sacred district contains within its center the sanctuary. With its 25,000 cubits square, that's 8.29 miles square, and within the sanctuary is the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies. This is the place of God's presence among his people. Verse 2 tells us that surrounding the sanctuary block is a border of open land. According to scholar Daniel Block, this open land is to act as a buffer around the holiness, sort of to guard the holiness of the sanctuary. Also within the sacred district, outward from this open land buffer to the land allotted to the Zedekite priests to live. Listen to it in verse 15, 4415. This explains their role a little bit more fully. But the Levitical priests, who are descendants of Zadok, and who guard my sanctuary when the Israelites, and who guarded my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, are to come near to minister before me. They are to stand before me to offer sacrifices of fat and blood, declares the sovereign Lord. They alone are to enter my sanctuary. They alone are to come near my temple or my table to minister before me and serve as guards. Verse 11 in chapter 48 says this, The Zedekites, who were faithful in serving me and did not go astray as the Levites did when the Israelites went astray, it will be a special gift to them from the sacred portion of the land, a most holy portion bordering the territory of the Levites. I'll explain the difference between the Zedekite priests and the Levites as I describe the Levite district. That's the next portion, the Levite district. To the north, above and outside the sacred district, is the Levite district. The reason they are not within the sacred district is because, as chapter 48, verse 11 said, the Levites went astray when the, when the Israelites went astray. Let me rabbit trail a bit here for us, because it will play into the rest of this allotment later. Levites are descendants of the line of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, or Israel. During the time of Moses and Aaron, after the exodus from Egypt, the Levites were led by Aaron, who was their first high priest. They were given responsibility over the tabernacle, the, the portable tent of the presence, as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. And even right up later, even to the time of the temple, they were overseeing that as well and the worship there. According to the law, all priests in Israel were to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. There were sort of two lines of Levites, those who could trace their lineage back to Aaron and those who couldn't. During the time of David, King David, Zadok, the son of uh, Ahitub, uh, was a Levite priest. 
And along with his brother, Abba, Abba Thar, all these weird names, was a co-high priest with him. They were descendants of Aaron. And when David's son Absalom conspired against him, David was forced to flee Jerusalem. This is from 2 Samuel, if you remember when we got through there. Zadok and his brother and their sons joined David, and Zadok, leading the procession of the Levites, they carried the Ark of the Covenant along with David. Zadok and his family's devotion to, the, to Yahweh and to the king won the Lord's favor greatly. And clearly, from Ezekiel 48, the Zadokites were the only Levites who did not go astray even during the time of the kings subsequent to David and Solomon between David and the exile. So as for the other Levites, they received an allotment of land, but they were not given direct access to the sanctuary or the most holy place like the Zedekites were. They could offer sacrifices, but they remained only as guards over the temple. Ezekiel 44 verse 10. The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray and who wandered from me after their their idols must bear the consequences of their sin. They may serve in my sanctuary. Having charge of the gates of the temple and serving in it, they may slaughter the burnt offerings and sacrifices for the people and stand before the people and serve them. But because they served them in the presence of their idols and made the people of Israel fall into sin, therefore I have sworn with uplifted hand that they must bear the consequences of their sin, declares the Sovereign Lord. They are not to come near to serve me as priests or come near any of my holy things or my most holy offerings. They must bear the shame of their detestable practices and I will appoint them to guard the temple for all the work that is to be done in it. Interestingly, way back in Deuteronomy 10, Joshua 13, and even future in Jeremiah 33, all tell us that the Levites, the tribe of Levi, didn't get an allotment of land in the first allotment under Joshua. Chapter 13, verses 19. This is what it says, and here's why. Deuteronomy 18, the the Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They are to live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. So before they sinned, this was the Levites' inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as He promised them. So Deuteronomy 10 tells us that the Lord was to be their inheritance, Him alone. And as such, they would have first-hand access to Yahweh. I mean, what better inheritance could you get? It's definitely better than money. They were considered, they were responsible for carrying and also caring for the Ark of the Covenant and the numerous worship practices within the tabernacle and then later in the temple under Solomon. On a side note, because everybody always asks after the service, after the Babylonian army invaded Jerusalem and destroyed its first temple in 586 B.C., the Ark of the Covenant just disappeared. Some some try to figure this out through the Bible, some through history things, some through archaeology, but some say the priests hid it when they were under the hand of their, their conquerors. Some say it was taken by the Babylonians and either destroyed for the gold or hidden away. Some think that the ark is somewhere uh, hidden 
in the current Temple Mount in Jerusalem, somewhere underneath. And there was even one excavation of Jews that tried to get under, but they were stopped by the Palestinian Authority, and they couldn't go any further. Some say the Ark is in, uh, is in Ethiopia. I mean, they've, they claim that it is there. If you want to know more about that, ask Bob and, and Margaret. They were there. Some say Indiana Jones hid it away in a warehouse somewhere. Others claim that it's on Oak Island in Nova Scotia. And if that's the case, it'll be the biggest Bobby Dazzler yet. Clearly a top pocket find, though it won't fit in your top pocket. But wherever it is, it's not described in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple. However, Revelation 11 says that it's in the temple in heaven. Is that Ezekiel's temple or another temple? We don't know. Another reason not to press the literalism of the future temple idea in Ezekiel. Anyway, for whatever reason, here in Ezekiel, in a temple that already exists, the Lord gives all the Israelites an allotment of land, which is different from the first time around. And it's their inheritance now. Now we move out of the Lord's portion for a bit, and we'll go back and we'll, we'll discuss a new special character, okay? The prince's portion, number three. The prince's portion. Surprisingly, this land is on the western and eastern sides of that sacred cube and between Judah and Benjamin's uh, portions. And it's between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. And this land would not belong to the priests, but to a new figure known only as the prince. Let's look at him, Ezekiel 45, verses 7 to 8. The prince will have the land bordering each side of the area formed by the sacred district and the property of the city. It will extend eastward, or sorry, westward from the west side, makes sense, and eastward from the east side, running lengthwise from the western to the eastern border, parallel to one of the tribal portions. This land will be his uh, possession in Israel. For my princes will no longer oppress my people. Remember, that was the problem during the period of the kings. But will allow the people of Israel to possess the land according to their tribes. Verse 16, all the people of the land will be required to give a special offering to the prince in Israel. It will be the duty of the prince to provide the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, at all the appointed festivals of Israel. He will provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the Israelites. So commentators have speculated on his identity, and no one knows. No one comes to anything conclusive. Some think he is a messianic foreshadowing, kind of like Melchizedek, right, in Genesis 14. Uh, remember the time of Abraham, who was both a king and a priest of Salem. Salem later becomes Jerusalem, right? Surprisingly, the prince does all this priest-like stuff business, yet he's not a, prince, a, a, a priest, He's making what the priesthood does possible, but he's not a priest. He's more of a political figure. In a similar way, King David conducted some priestly functions, didn't he? As the priest does. So, something in there maybe. Some think that he must be something other than a messianic foreshadowing though, due to the fact that he had children and that he had to make sacrifices for atonement for himself. Obviously, neither of which applied to Jesus. Jesus never had kids, and he never had to make sacrifices for sin. Jesus was both prophet, priest, and king. So 
I'm not convinced this lines up with Jesus. Some are, that's fine, whatever. But regardless of who he is, Michael, uh, scholar Michael Heiser suggests that this is probably still Jesus, but he says you can't get there with a literal reading of Ezekiel 40 to 48. You can get there with a conceptual, symbolic, non-literal, abstract reading of the passage and then bring other passages into it to explain the language of those eight chapters. I guess that's one way that you could get Jesus in it to connect. I don't know. That's a little too complicated for my brain. But let's just say that he's a unique figure called the prince, and he plays, he does play a very significant role in the final vision of chapters 40 to 48. So let's get back to the Lord's portion. Let's back up a little bit in our our portions here. That cube of sacred space. That includes the sanctuary, the priest district, and also the sacred district. So within the Lord's portion is also the city district. The city district. Ezekiel 45, verse 6. You are to give the city as its property an area of 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 cubits long, adjoining the sacred portion. It will belong to all Israel. Note that verse 6 it's just an interesting thing. I don't know what it means exactly. Maybe somebody here has read about it. I haven't. But it, verse 6 seems to kind of stand alone as its own paragraph within your Bibles. Just take a look at how it's written in your Bible. It just sort of stands alone between verse 5 and verse 7. And for whatever reason, it's like that in every Bible except the King James Version and the Christian Standard Bible. That doesn't mean anything necessarily. It's just what it is. And so I uh, just thought I'd point that out. Probably means nothing. The city seems relatively small compared to the, the temple space, doesn't it? Yet it's connected to it. And that makes sense since life in Israel among God's people is found in its worship of Yahweh. Without that, they're not God's people. Ezekiel 48, verses 15 to 20. The remaining area, 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 cubits long, will be for the common use of the city. For houses and for pasture land, the city will be in the center of it and will have these measurements. Verse 18, its produce will supply food for the workers of the city. The workers from the city who farm it will come from all the tribes of Israel. And that, impo- and that portion includes the city in the center and then gardens on the sides for food on the east and the west. This cube of land on the map is located where Jerusalem has always been located. This follows scripture that Yahweh has always chosen Jerusalem to be the focal point of his redemptive plan through the ages. Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and even at the end of the age. Look at Ezekiel 5.5. That's flipping back a few chapters here. Ezekiel 5.5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem which I have set in the center of the nation. So he's reflecting back all the way to the time that it was Jerusalem. I have set it in the center of the nations with countries all around her. There's a reason for that. It was supposed to be because of her influence on the world that she was the centerpiece. All this temple stuff began with Abraham. He's considered the father of the faith of Israel. And it was on Mount Moriah, if you remember, that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. Stopped, of course, when the Lord provides a ram for the sacrifice. But do you know where Mount Moriah is? It's right here in Jerusalem. 
Today, this is known as the Temple Mount. This is where the remains of Herod's temple is. This is part of the Lord's portion. Let's look at another part under the Lord's portion, the sanctuary. This space is also the place where Zerubbabel's temple was and Solomon's temple was. Currently, the Temple Mount is occupied and controlled by the Palestinian Authority. In other words, the Muslims possess it. The Gold Dome is known as the Dome of the Rock, and it was built around 700 A.D., and it's built on top of the foundation stone. Now, if you've ever been to the Temple Mount, sometimes they let uh, non-Muslims up there, sometimes they don't. You're certainly not allowed to pray up there, and no one is allowed in the Dome of the Rock if you're not a Muslim. It's a sacred space to Muslims because it's their claim that it was the final destination of their prophet Muhammad on his famous Al-Isra wall, uh, wall mirage, his night journey. It was here on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, that Muhammad was allegedly taken up into the presence of Allah in heaven on a stallion. Next to the Quran, the ascent of Muhammad is considered the great, second greatest miracle in Islam. But according to Jewish tradition, the foundation stone that is there is the navel of the earth, the place where creation began. And it is the site where Abraham offered sacrifice of Isaac. Since the time of Joshua, Mount Moriah has been in the possession of the Jebusites. If you remember, around 1000 BC, it was still a Jebusite threshing floor on top of Mount Moriah. And David purchases it as a place to put an altar for worship of Yahweh. Then David builds a palace at the base of the mountain. And he establishes Jerusalem as Israel's new capital. He wanted to build a temple there, but remember the Lord said, no, but your son will. And Solomon, his son, builds the first temple to the Lord there. Whether navel of the earth or Mount Moriah or Holy City or Mount Zion or Temple Mount, for the Jews, this has always been the place where God's throne in heaven touched the earth. It's the most significant place in Israelite geography. In fact, the altar, which is actually in the sanctuary space above the city, is we read in chapter 45, verse 19, also in 43, verse 12, that the altar is even more central. Listen to 43 verses 15 to 17. Above that, that is above the ledge of the altar, the altar hearth is four cubits high, four, and the four horns project upward from the, from the hearth. The altar hearth is square. Twelve cubits long and twelve cubits wide. Uh, commentator John uh, Levinson, in his expert work, it's a paper, it's not a book or a commentary that you can buy, uh, The Theology of the Program of Restoration of Israel 40 to 48. That's why it's not a book, it has a horrible title. But anyway, he states that the Hebrew phrase, uh, the Hebrew phrase, altar hearth, is actually the Hebrew term har har el. Literally, he states, it's translated the mountain of el. Har meaning, meaning mountain, and El being the ancient Near Eastern and Jewish reference to God. El, Elohim. So this altar hearth in, in Jewish understanding is the mountain of God. John Walton backs this up in his book, The Lost World of, of Genesis 1, and he claims that the creation account, remember the Jews believe that creation started on this mountain, 
He says, creation is really about Yahweh's construction of the heavens and the earth as a cosmic temple building project. He also says, scholars have also recognized that the temple and tabernacle contain a lot of imagery from the Garden of Eden. Have you ever noticed that? He says, they note that gardens commonly adjoined sacred space in the ancient world. Furthermore, the imagery of fertile waters flowing from the presence of the deity, like we have in Ezekiel's temple, to bring abundance to the earth is a well-known image. The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypical sanctuary that is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in the later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle in the Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary for God, a place where he abides. And you remember, God walked with Adam and Eve, where? In the cool of the garden. Notably, like in Eden, in this new land that Ezekiel describes, There is a river that begins at the back of the sanctuary, runs past the altar, and it flows out of the temple, then out of the city, and as it flows, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it stretches west to the Mediterranean Sea and east to the Dead Sea. If you've been to the Dead Sea, it's a dead sea. It's just so full of salt, nothing can grow there. But this river will purify and heal everything it touches, not just the water, but from it all kinds of things will flourish. Ezekiel 47, 1-2. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from, the, from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the uh, around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. He, he continued following it until, it says in verse 6, he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty waters there become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the, water, wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because, the, uh, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. 47 verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruits fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Commentator Levinson again, and uh, tracks with Walton, the other commentator that I mentioned earlier, when they claim these are parallels here between Genesis 2 and the building of the tabernacle and the temple. The temple and the world stand in an intimate and intrinsic connection, he says. The two projects cannot ultimately be distinguished or disengaged. Each recounts how God brought about an environment in which he establishes his rest and presence. Wow. The central space in the allotment of Israel 
and specifically the sanctuary and the altar, clearly focuses God's attention again on this special piece of earthly real estate. And Jerusalem and her temple are still the center of the earth. Even in our expectation of the unfolding of biblical end times prophecy, isn't it? Where is it that Christ will touch down again at his second coming? So if you're reading these chapters with only a literal framework in mind, with regard to the temple and this future Jerusalem, then you're going to miss the whole center of the earth, mountain of God, sanctuary, symbology kind of stuff. And as we learned last week, the temple of Ezekiel is the temple of God. It is Christ in the New Testament expression. And it is us who believe in the new covenant. As scholar Michael Heiser says, if Old Testament temple talk points to the temple being the cosmic center, what the New Testament described, but doing so in far more literal terms, points to precisely the same idea. We, the church, are already the cosmic mountain. We are the temple of God. We are the central thing. The body of Christ is the central thing through which God works out his decrees and his plans for humanity. And that, res- and that is to restore Eden. We are the agents of that program. We are the already cosmic center awaiting the not yet cosmic center. The return of Jesus who is the temple and the ushering in of the new Jerusalem in a global Eden. There's a lot of commentary language there. But I hope you're getting the gist. This, this gets deep, my friends, but God doesn't miss a detail in the way he tracks with history. He connects everything from beginning to end. Let me draw us to Revelation to bring these last eight chapters to a full circle conclusion for us. And listen to what the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, tells us his plan has been through the ages. Namely, the return of Jesus, who is the temple, the ushering in of a new Jerusalem after the cosmic dragon, the cosmic chaos agent is destroyed. He will then bring in a new Jerusalem, another picture of the throne of God coming to this earth in a new global Eden to dwell and sustain God's people forever. Revelation 21. Let's go there. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 21. If you want to follow in your Bible, you can, or maybe just close your eyes and picture this. It'll be up in the overhead too. John says, this is a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice this. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the creation, and the end. To the thirsty I I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. 
Those who are victorious will inherit all this. There's the inheritance, the allotment. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, last, of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Notice that. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was that, uh, was that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels. We never got to the gates in Ezekiel. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates, and on the, uh, three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Read the last chapter of Ezekiel for this. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod, sound familiar, of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, it, as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, and the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl, and the great street of the city was gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city. You should underline that. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood tree, uh, the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of, of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Sound familiar? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see his face, hallelujah, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be need of the lamp 
or the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And in doing this, God, who will, who will have brought his redemptive plan full circle when this happens, what God started in creation, he develops with Israel, he redeems in Christ, and for which he empowers the church by his spirit. His body. And when Christ returns, that cosmic dragon, that enemy of chaos, will be destroyed. And, he will, and God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth and a new city. The heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly throne will now be among men forever. And this is the already but not yet cosmic mountain. The navel of the earth, as the Jews put it, that God first developed in Eden, stretched out through history, and will conclude as Revelation says it concludes. It's always been his goal, folks. And you and I, along with everyone who believes, will get a share in the Lord's reign forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Folks, the book of Ezekiel has been a long journey. It's been a deep journey. It's been a not thorough journey. We've only hit the highlights of it. I encourage you to read it again in the future. And when you do, I hope you get even more out of it. But I hope that we go away with it understanding very clearly that God is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over his people. And the main emphasis of of Ezekiel is that God's people need to stay faithful to him. No matter what comes their way, no matter what tribulation or trouble comes their way, God's people need to stay faithful to the end to inherit the promise that he promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, to you be glory, honor, and power. You reign, you are sovereign, and in Christ Jesus you have made a way possible for us who believe to be considered among the people of God. Oh, Lord, we are not worthy of such a gift, but thank you for Jesus, his blood, his sacrifice, his his rising from the grave, which we're going to be celebrating in just a couple of weeks, and also the ascension and the gift uh, gift of Pentecost. Lord, we now await only one more thing. We only need to wait now for the Christ to come a second time. And Lord, we do, because when you do, Lord Jesus, you've said that you will bring your blessing and your promise with us. God, be praised in Jesus' name.